0: All right. We are going to be back in our study of the Didache tonight, and just um, uh, again, just so that all of you understand what that is. This is a first-century document that most scholars actually believe predates the Bible. We are not studying this as Holy Spirit-inspired Scripture. We are studying this as a very interesting document that many, many of our church fathers, early church fathers, we're talking second and third centuries, church fathers quoted this document here. So again, we can take that to understand that even though we don't know that it is Holy Spirit inspired as we do the other books of the Bible, what we do know is that the early church Understood this document to be a um, a very trustworthy document. They understood this to be a document that was um, uh, worthy of teaching to new disciples, specifically people that were going to soon be baptized, and this was one way, one thing they would give them to help teach them along the way. And again, if you think about it, if this predates. And the, most believe it predates all of the New Testament. Some believe it only it predates all, everything in the New Testament except Matthew and James. All right? So there is some, some confusion as far as exactly which books it predates. But still, let's just go with the latter. Let's say that it only predates Matthew and James. Still, the church and the early disciples would have needed some type of teaching and they would have needed something to be able to look at and understand that this is the way that a Christian is called to live. Someone that says they are dying to their old sinful life, and someone that says they're rising to be a disciple of Jesus and to follow Jesus, then they need to have some kind of guidance and some kind of teaching. This is what the Didache actually was. And that word Didache is just a... It's a Greek word that means the teaching. That's all it means. And so it means... The teaching, and the full title for this is The Teaching of the Twelve Apostles to the Nations, or nations in most of those contexts meant Gentiles. And so for the most part, this is a document that they believe the the Twelve Apostles actually put together for the purpose of teaching the Gentile nation this is how a Christian should live. Now, of course, because Christianity is the fulfillment of the Jewish faith, right? So there are going to be Jewish teachings that are involved in, Christianities, in Christianity, but I don't want you to think that what they're doing here is they're not trying to turn Gentile Christians into Jews. That's not the case. The Jewish law and all that we have was to point us toward what Jesus Christ was going to do and how we fell short of everything that God required. It showed us our sin condition. Galatians chapter 3, verse 23, I believe is where I'm talking about. It taught us our need for a Savior. And then ultimately, we have still moral parts of the Jewish law that you and I, even as Christians, are still responsible to follow. Correct? So like for instance... Just because Jesus died on the cross, does that mean that we should no longer follow the rule that says, Thou shalt not murder? No. That is still a moral obligation that we are called to. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal from each other. Don't bear false witness against thy neighbor. And so there are many moral parts of the law that we are still obligated to fulfill as Christians and as disciples of Christ. Jesus' primary concern was following the moral part of the law. And at the same time, Jesus came and fulfilled all of the, um, the spiritual demonstrations of the law, if you will. For instance, we don't follow the sacrificial part of the law anymore. Why? Jesus was the fulfillment of that, correct? Correct. Um, we don't keep the Sabbath day holy anymore so that we set aside every Saturdays and we, we look back at God's creation and we look forward to His rest that is coming. Why? Because Jesus has fulfilled the work that God required and He is our rest. And so we recognize the Sabbath today only in the sense that we celebrate Jesus' fulfillment of it and we do that every Sunday Every Sunday we come together, as was the custom of the early church in the New Testament, on Resurrection Day, we come together and we celebrate the death, burial, and resurrection, the finished work of Jesus Christ that you and I rest in. Remember, we can't work for our salvation, right? Is there any work that you can do to earn your salvation? No, if it was, Jesus would not have had to die. You remember what he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane to his father? He said, Father, if there is what? Any other way. If it is possible to accomplish this task of salvation for mankind any other way, then let's go that way. But was there any other way? No. That's the reason why at the end he would pray, Nevertheless, not at my will, but thy will be done. In other words, there is only one way to fulfill the work that you and I are required to do as human beings created in the image of God. Jesus had to fulfill it and because He fulfilled that work and He finished that work, now you and I rest in that work and we rest in the gospel. And then yes, do we still follow Him? Absolutely we follow Him. Do we still strive for righteousness? Absolutely we strive for righteousness. But if does that mean that if you sin, that you now have to work, work, work so that you can be saved? No, we rest in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And this is why we don't celebrate and keep the Sabbath the way the Old Testament law did because it was a shadow of the things to come that christ was going to do but again back to what i'm talking about there are moral obligations that as a disciple of jesus because that is what we are called to be remember the great commission jesus said go unto all the world and preach the gospel to every nation and then he gave three steps that we do to fulfill this he said we Baptize them in the name, or first we go and preach, then we baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and then we teach them to what? To observe everything that I have commanded. In other words, we are making disciples because disciples follow their leader, their master, their teacher. And so we are learning to follow everything Jesus commanded by being taught. And that's what we come into the church to do. Our whole purpose is not just to come together and raise some hands and praise the Lord. Yes, don't get me wrong, we worship the Lord. But do you remember what Jesus said about worship? When He told the, the woman at the well, the woman from Samaria, He said, there's coming a day when neither in Jerusalem nor on this mountain will you worship. But those who worship God will worship Him in what? Spirit and truth. So at the end of the day, yes, we do come together to praise the Lord and worship the Lord, but that's not our purpose as a church. No, we worship Him in spirit and truth every day, all day, wherever we are. So what are we doing as a church? We are, go back to Ephesians chapter 4 and you'll see, We are learning to grow into the measure and the stature of the fullness of Jesus Christ till we all reach a perfect man. In other words, the image of Jesus Christ. And so we are learning to grow in our discipleship. That's what we're here for. That's what things like the Didache or even the New Testament that was written likely after this, that's what those letters and those documents are for. They are so disciples can be taught all the things that Jesus commanded. And if you'll notice, if you ever go through the New Testament books, you'll notice that every New Testament book is pretty well split into two categories. The first category usually starts out with who you are in Jesus, what He has done for you, Um, you you are redeemed you are saved you are forgiven you are adopted you are and he names off all these things that you are and how it was accomplished and then usually the second part of the book are the way that that applies to your life now because this is who you are this is what you should do this is how you should live it out therefore put off these things and put on these things and Go to the school of Jesus Christ as Ephesians chapter 4 teaches us. But no matter what book you go to, that's basically the pattern you're going to see. First, this is who you are. This is what Jesus has done for you. And then some more about middle ways or further through the book. Now, this is how you apply it to your life so that you become a disciple of Jesus. Just for context of that, if you want to see that tonight, go home tonight. Read Ephesians chapter 1 and ask yourself, what's he doing in Ephesians chapter 1? And then go to Ephesians chapter 4, and ask yourself, what's he doing right here? Ephesians chapter 1 through 3, they're about, this is who you are in Jesus. Ephesians chapter 4 through 6, this is how you apply it. This is what a disciple of Jesus looks like, and this is how they live. Or go home and read Romans, and look at Romans chapter 1 through 11. Romans chapter 1 through 11 are all about the gospel and this is how you're saved and this is what Jesus has done for you and these are the promises that benefit you from salvation in Him. And then when you get to Romans chapter 12, He says, therefore, now put off the things that don't belong and do this and do this and do this. Here's how you apply it to your life. And that is the way that all of these things are laid out. So here in the Didache tonight, all we're getting is another document that teaches us this is what a disciple of Jesus Christ looks like. If you haven't been here with us, and although there's a few that that haven't, the first few chapters of this document are focusing on um, the way of life and the way of death. And so basically, it gives you this is the way of life. And it's summed up in two things. The way that leads to life is that you love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. And then the second way of life is like it. You love your neighbor as yourself. And that is the way that Jesus taught us how to live. And if you fulfill those two things, Jesus himself said, on these two hang all the law and all the prophets. As Paul said in Romans chapter 13, I believe it is. He said, if you love your neighbor, then you can't do any harm toward them. If you're actually loving them the way that God would have you to love them, there is no sin that you can commit against your neighbor. If you are loving God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, there is no sin that you can commit against God. And so ultimately, the more you learn what those two things look like in your life, then you're able to follow the way of life. And then tonight we're going to get into the way of death. But let's finish up um, the way of life first. And we are, um, if you've got a page number at the bottom of your page, you should have. We're on page number three. We're in chapter four. And let's just pick up at the very first part of chapter four. And I'm going to go through the first part quickly because... I already taught it last week, so I don't want to spend a lot of time redoing what we've already done. But I want you to notice first off that this is a fatherly letter, if you will. Notice how he starts it out. What's the first two words right there? My child. child. And the point being is this. This is like a spiritual father writing to a spiritual son or daughter. And the point is, this is a a term of endearment. It's a it's a term that really expresses a genuine desire of love for this convert, if you will. And his heart is to see this child of God be transformed into a disciple of Jesus Christ. (coughs) Excuse me. That ought to be the desire of every spiritual father. Now, how do you become a spiritual father or a spiritual mother? Well, you become someone that is raising up a disciple. So, for instance, there was a time that I was a spiritual child, and to some people, I still am a spiritual child. I'm still learning. I'm still growing. But, at the same time, I have now been responsible for helping others be trained up and raised in it. And so, in that context, I have become a spiritual father. And it is my desire not just to see pews filled up, no. My desire is to see you be a disciple of Jesus, to see you actually be transformed, not to be conformed to this world but to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. How do we renew our mind? By learning the teachings of Jesus, by letting the Holy Spirit cleanse us and show us what is wrong and sinful and the things that we should go to war with and put off and then showing us the things of Jesus that would, that would be wise for us to apply to our life and put on. And this is the heart of this, whoever this writer is of this. He says, my child, And here's where he starts out. Remember night and day him who speaks the word of God to you and honor him as you do the Lord. Why? Is it because he's such a great person? Is it because he's such an outstanding, perfect man? No. Look what he says next. For wherever the lordly rule is ordered, what is it? There is the Lord. In other words, when I speak to you tonight, if I'm speaking to you the Word of God in truth, you don't honor me because of who I am. You honor me because of who I speak for. And so ultimately, if you honor me speaking the truth of God to you, who are you ultimately honoring? God Himself. And so this is where, and then we go further because we want to know, well, why? Why would we need to do this? And then look what He says next. And seek out day by day the faces of the saints. And he's still talking about the teachers, okay? He's still talking about those who are uttering the lordly rule to them. They're teaching them. And seek out day by day the faces of the saints. Why? In order that you may rest upon their words. Because again, what is the heart of this man? That you would grow. How are you going to grow? Faith comes by what? and hearing the word of Christ. And so ultimately we come together and we want to hear about Jesus. We want to hear about His life that He lived. We want to hear about um, how He loved people and how He treated others. And we want to try to model our life after what He did. Every time we come together, you ought to leave here going, how can I apply what I just heard to my life? so that I can be more of a disciple of Jesus Christ. Because can I tell you a little secret tonight? If you are not applying the Word of God to your life, you are not a disciple. That's the truth. If you are not applying the Word of Christ to your life, you are not a disciple. But if you come with the mindset of, I believe in Jesus, I trust in Jesus, I want to follow Jesus, and then you listen to His teachings and you find ways to apply that to your life, that's a disciple. That's what a disciple does. And the more you do that, the more of a disciple you actually become. And again, that's our job. That's what we're trying to accomplish. And so we need to make sure we honor the ones that are speaking the word of Lord in truth to us. All right. And we ought to seek out. What does it mean to seek out? Look for them. You know, I'm going to tell you something I do now. And, and, and I know y'all say, well, you're a preacher. Um, so you ought to you ought to do things a little bit different and stuff. But I'm going to tell you, there's not a day that goes by that I don't listen to another pastor's sermon of some kind. Most of the time, two or three a day. There's not a day that goes by that I'm not, I'm not seeking out teaching on certain subjects and wanting, to, and wanting to learn more and know more. And the reason being is because, well, two reasons. One reason is because I want to grow in my discipleship. Because let me tell you something, I know I'm a sinner. (laughs) I mean, I'm telling you, I know who I am. And I want to put that stuff to death. And I want to be at war with that. And I want to be becoming more like Him. And I want people to see Him coming to life in me. But then at the same time, I want to be able to come here and help you do it too. And let me tell you, if, if, if I ever reach a point to where I quit learning and I quit discipling, there will come a point real quick that I can no longer do anything for you. Amen. You'll never outgrow me. You won't. You will never outgrow me unless you're seeking out teachers. Else, what, You see what I'm saying? But as a disciple of this church and, and of the teachings that it is here, you will never outgrow me. As a result of that, I have a responsibility to make sure that I am daily seeking out teachers and preachers of the Word so that I'm continually growing in my understanding and the things that I need to make sure that I'm going to war at with in my life and things that I need to apply to my life. And so it's your responsibility to do the same thing. One of the most important ways you can do that is by making sure that you're taking advantage when you can of sitting under my teaching or whoever's teaching in the Sunday schools or whatever the case may be. If you're a parent, one of the most important things you can do is make sure that you're trying to do that yourself at home if possible and then if nothing else you're trying to get them under people that are able to to teach them and to disciple them and to be able to help them to grow into it but we need to be be sure that we are seeking out day by day the faces of the saints in order that you may rest upon their words and so i don't ever want you to to not under, to, to not To take for granted. Let me say that. I don't ever want you to take for granted that coming to church Sunday after Sunday or Wednesday night, that that's just something that we do. It's something we do because it's the right thing to do. Because I'm going to tell you something. I know a lot of people that are faithful to the church, but the only reason that many of them are faithful to the church is just because that's just the right thing to do. It's not actually a seeking out of the teachings of the Lord so that I can genuinely be a better disciple and growing as a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this is one thing that maybe you can apply to your life. Maybe you can look at this and you can say, I need to make sure that I'm seeking out the teachings of the Lord. And the best place to be able to do that is the one that God designed. Plan A, because there is no plan B for growing as a disciple. That is the body of Christ. Again, go back and read Ephesians chapter 4. it will teach you that. That He gave gifts to people, apostles, prophets, teachers, shepherds, pastors, so that they can equip the saints for the work of the ministry until we all come to a mature manhood, until the measure of the fullness of the stature of Jesus Christ, and so you go on and on, and then you get to the end of that. Ephesians chapter 4, I think somewhere around verse 16 or 18 maybe, he says that when each part does its share, talking about the church, right? When each part does its share, growth occurs. That's God's plan A. So again, don't hear me as some pastor up here trying to get more people to come to, come to our fellowship. No, that ain't, that ain't my goal. My goal is your discipleship. And if I don't have but two or I don't have but one, I'll disciple one. But you have to understand that what I'm telling you is for your own benefit and for your own good and you are to have a heart in you not to come just because I'm preaching or somebody's teaching, but you want to seek out the Word of God wherever it is uttered in truth. And you can can know whether or not it's truth or not, I believe. I believe you are to be able to follow along with me in the teachings or even through this thing right here. You are to be able to have scriptures come into mind to know that either this is right or this is wrong. And I can take you to scripture to show you that Paul told them to honor those who speak the word of Lord to them. And I think it's somewhere around 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 1, somewhere around in there, I believe it is. But this is a biblical direction. And so seek out by day the faces of the saints, in order that you may rest upon their words. Now that's, that's here, here's, I like to outline things. The way I outline those are uh, the disciples' behavior toward their teachers. Alright? And so I outline those sections by saying, this is the kind of behavior that a disciple of Jesus would have toward those who teach Him. He honors them. He trusts that the Lord's presence is in their words as they speak the Lord's word. He um, seeks out their faces day by day and he rests upon their words as he learns them and he takes them in and he finds comfort in them and he finds teaching and application in them. And so this is a disciple's behavior in the way that he behaves toward his teachers, whoever they may be. The next section we get to is the the disciples' behavior toward um, conflict in the church. Because how many of you know that even though you are a born-again Christian, you are not exempt from conflict from another believer, right? Matter of fact, conflict is actually part of the way that we practice our Christian faith. You want me to give you an example? Look all throughout the New Testament and see how many times you are commanded to be long-suffering. How many times you're commanded to put on humility, to put on gentleness, to put on kindness, to put on meekness, to put on forgiveness, to put on... None of those things are needed unless there is conflict. You understand that, right? But for someone... To say, I'm a disciple of Jesus, but yet I'm unwilling to show forgiveness, meekness, gentleness, kindness, forgiveness, long-suffering. That's not being a disciple. The very place that you get to show your Christianity, the very place that you get to show that you are growing in Christ, is in the midst of conflict. Are you, somebody ought to said, Amen. OB or something. Because that's difficult, right? Because how many of you know that we're not naturally, most of us, not naturally long-suffering? No. You, my wife's sitting back there. Ask her the way I was when we first got married. Ask her if I was long-suffering or if I had a short fuse. I had to put on long-suffering. I had to put on gentleness. I had to put on kindness. I had to put on meekness. And I had to put off all those other things. And let me tell you something, that takes growth is what that does. And so it's important that we understand here that when he tells us next, look what he says next, Do not long for division, but rather bring those who contend to what? Peace. And so here is the way the disciple should behave toward conflict in the church. You ought to be the kind of person that is a peacemaker, not someone that helps with the division. And I'm going to tell you, you can tell how mature you are in Christ by how you respond to conflict in the church. Now, I'm not saying you're not a Christian because this is something we got to grow in. Let me tell you something. This is a difficult one. This is not one that you just overnight... You become great and mature in dealing with conflict. No, you've got to go through some conflict. You've got to make some stupid mistakes. You've got to open your mouth up and let stupid fall out a time or two. And the more you do that and the more you humble yourself and learn from it and grow from it, the better you get at being a peacemaker. And this is exactly what Christ called us to do when He talked about the Beatitudes. He said, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. In other words, one of the ways you know you're a child of God is if you become someone that seeks for peace. Because the Bible tells us that God is a God of peace. The Bible tells us that a God is a God that, that offers peace. The Bible tells us that we can be at peace with God. The Bible tells us that He is the Prince of Peace. The Bible tells us in Ephesians chapter 2 that He indeed is our peace. The Bible tells us in Romans chapter 12, verse 18, that we should seek peace with others. Because again, the point being is this. You and I have been called to peace with God. Therefore, we should be at peace with everyone else. Hey, where's Nathan at? Is Nathan? He's probably in the back, ain't he? Chester, you have access to the thermostats? Because I think people are freezing. There he is. Yeah. I was going to get one. Nathan's back there. Can you turn the thermostats down? I see everybody grabbing covers and jackets and covering up, so I'm going to try to help you out here because I love you. All right. So notice what he says next. Do not long for division, but rather bring those who contend to peace. So be a peacemaker. This is how you respond to conflict. This is something you have to learn. Next, we also see more behavior toward it because if you're going to help those that are contending to make peace, you're going to have to be someone who judges righteously. Because I want you to understand something. The Bible calls us to judge one another. I hear so many immature Christians today saying, I ain't, ain't going to judge nobody. I'm not going to judge... Listen, you need to learn the Bible. The Bible calls us to make righteous judgment. The Bible calls us to examine fruit on on others and to love them enough to help them to shed bad fruit and put on good fruit. We're called to be able to, to judge between each other and to help each other find peace in their contentions because someone usually is right and someone's wrong sometimes, right? And God cares about justice. God cares about justice. And so at the end of the day, we are caught. This was what Paul's problem was in 1 Corinthians. Go with me to 1 Corinthians. I think it's chapter 6. Just look at it real quick with me for a minute. Make sure I told you right. Yeah. (coughs) Excuse me. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We'll look at verse 1 real quick. Remember I told you Sunday morning that Corinth was a messed up church, right? Well, here's one thing that they were doing wrong that Paul explicitly tells them this has to stop and you've got to change it. Look what he says in verse 1. When one of you has a grievance against another. So what's the problem here? I got a problem. Me and Bobby got a problem, right? I have offended Bobby and Bobby is mad. All right? Now keep going. Does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of who? Instead of the saints. So here was what the problem should have been. Me and Bobby should have been able to come together and say, hey, let's let the church help us out with this. Let's let the church help us out with this. We need to, we need to resolve this. We need to not be continue in grievances with each other, we need to come to the bottom of this. And so if we can't figure this out on our own, then I have a responsibility to let the church help us figure this out. In a sense, instead of going to law, because what do you do when you go to law? You plead your case, right? Instead of going to law to plead my case, I'm going to the saints to plead my case. And then notice what he says next in verse 2. Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? The saints are actually going to be judges with the Lord Jesus Christ. But you say, don't judge me. <laughs> you know what? It's better that you let the church go on and judge you now than you have to do, handle it later. I would rather you correct me now than to have to stand before the great white throne and be corrected then. You understand what I'm saying? Now keep going with me. Verse uh, the next. And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? Did you catch that? You're also going to be judging angels by what they did, didn't do, because they are servants to, to the, the saints. They're servants to the Lord, but Hebrews chapter 1 tells us they're servants to the saints, all right? And again, you go back and read that in Hebrews chapter 1 and you'll you'll find that. But still, the point, I can can back off of that. My point is made. We are called to, to help each other solve disputes and grievances. And this is not something we do anymore because we have this mindset of we're just not supposed to judge anybody. That's not what Jesus said. Jesus said, if you're going to judge, make sure first you've got the log out of your eye before you can try to get the splinter out of Bobby's eye. You see what I'm saying? He did not say you are never to judge. He said you are to judge righteously. You are to do it In a good heart, in a good spirit, in a good standing with God, having gotten and seen the logs in your own eye out first before you start trying to get logs out of other people's eyes. Alright? Now, keep reading with me. Judge righteously and do not respect persons in reproving for transgressions. What does that mean? If me and Bobby have a grievance and I'm coming to the church for a righteous judgment, What does he say here makes your judgment righteous or not righteous? There you go. There you go. In other words, I'm the pastor. What kind of chance does Bobby have at convincing the church? You see what I'm saying? I'm not saying that's what we would do, but you know well as I do. That's the way that our minds would work, right? And so here he tells us, you don't show no respect for persons. In other words, as you judge righteously and you help be a peacemaker by helping members of one another to work through their issues, as you do that, you don't show no respect toward persons. You do it equally across the board. You listen to Bobby's case, you listen to my case, you look at the evidence that's presented before you and you say, okay, Listen, based on our understanding, this is where we believe that the problem is and this is what we believe should be done. And then our job is to trust the church. Trust their righteous judgment. All right? Now, keep going with me. You shall not be undecided whether or not it shall be. Now, this meaning is kind of uncertain, but basically I think this is basically talking about you need to be sure of your decision. So if you're going to judge righteously, you're going to be a peacemaker, you're going to help people seek peace that are contending with each other, then your behavior toward them needs to be one of equal status and your behavior toward them needs to be one that you are fully decided and you fully understand all the evidence and you know that you know you're not making uncertain decisions, but you're doing your best you can to make sure that you're making good, righteous judgment. Does that make sense? And this is something that I believe that we ought to get back to as a church, to helping each other really work through their problems. Now again, Jesus taught us very plainly. Because think about how Jesus taught us. Again, if this predates predates the Bible, they're still going by Jesus' oral teachings is what they believe. But do you remember what Jesus said? If your brother sins against you, what do you do? You go to him. Her, whoever the case may be. And... You try to work this thing out between you and him alone, is what it says. And that's the way it ought to work out. But if Bobby and I cannot, cannot get this thing worked out, we cannot get on the same page, we cannot find peace, all we can find is contention, then Jesus said, what do you do next? You go and you get two or three witnesses. Why? Because according to the lower Maws, the Loa <laughs> blah, 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 blah. According to the law of Moses, by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word should be established, right? In other words, we start not with the whole church, but we start with Bobby and I trying to find two or three that will judge righteously so that we can figure out how do we reach an agreement in this? How do we figure this out? But then... If it cannot be solved by the mouth of two or three witnesses, what do you do? You bring it before the church, and then you let the church make a decision on it. All right? And so, and, and then if, if the church makes a decision, and the person refuses to repent, and the person refuses to turn away from it, you remember what Jesus said then? Let him be to you like a heathen or a tax collector. In other words, if he don't trust the church's judgment, Because remember what Jesus said to Peter? He said, I'm going to give you the keys to the kingdom. Hell will not prevail against you on this foundation. I'm going to build my church. And then he goes on to say, whatever sins you forgive, if you forgive them on earth, guess what? But whatever you bind is bound there too. I want you to think about that for a minute. God sets His order in the hands of the congregation of believers. And it is very important that we get back to the point that we understand. We have a pretty high calling to make disciples and in places where they're not following Jesus and not walking in peace, then we have a responsibility to help brothers and sisters turn away from sin, to help them seek justice, to help them come back to a place of peace. And whatever the church lands on, God says, that's what it lands on. Yep. And that's the reason why we have to be careful, because we're going to be judged by God one day by how we judge. Do you see what I'm saying? And so we have to be careful. <laughs> Uh, that, that, that we judge righteously. So this is the behavior toward judgment in the church. Now keep going with me. Next we get into the behavior toward the poor in the church. And you're going to see all of this is talking about people in the church. He's not just talking about in the world, okay? But go with me. Be not a stretcher forth of the hands to receive and a drawer of them back to give. What does that mean? Somebody interpret that for me. There you go. You are a stretcher forth of your hand asking God to give you, right? Everything you have comes from Him. Don't be a stretcher forth of the hand asking God to give you. But then when it comes for you to give, what do you do? And so we have to be very careful. The mindset that he's getting for a disciple is that everything you have comes from God. You are the person sitting out here with your hands out because you don't have nothing without Him. Your health, your job, I don't care what it is. You don't have anything unless He puts it in your hands. That's the reason why the Bible tells us that He makes His sun shine on the just and the unjust. He makes His rain fall on the evil and the good. There is a common grace that God gives so that whether you're a follower of His or not, He puts things in your hands. And so you don't be a person that has your hands stretched out to receive, but then when it comes time to give, you put them in your pocket. Now let's keep going. Follow this line of thought that he he has here. If you have anything through your hands, you shall give ransom for your sins. He's not saying that you pay for your sins by giving things. He's saying that the evidence that you are a receiver of God, the evidence that you understand everything you have comes from God will be in the fact that it comes out of you because you recognize what He's done for you. You see what I'm saying? I know what He's done for me, and if I know what He's done for me, there's no way I can keep this to myself. And so I gladly am able to give as what he calls here a ransom for his sins in some respects, but not to pay for his sins because we know the Bible teaches that nowhere. But look what he says next. Do not hesitate to give, nor complain when you give. Why? For you shall know who is the good repayer of the higher. In other words, you know who it is that repays you for the love that you show. You know, I've heard it said many years, and it's a true statement. You can't outgive God. You know that's true, right? He is the good repayer of those who show what he has done for you. Now, I'm not saying that if you give $20, that God's going to turn around tomorrow and give you 40 back. But I am saying that you're never going to outgive him. In some way or another, whether it's now or in the life to come, whatever the case may be. I believe the Bible teaches that it is both now and in the life to come. You will never outgive God. And so because of that, He tells us, do not hesitate to give. What does hesitate mean? Hold back. back. Don't, don't, don't Don't even stop for a moment, right? Don't stop for a moment to give. Nor complain. When you give, because you know who is the good repairer of the hire. Next he says, do not turn away from him who is in want. Rather, share all things with your brother, and do not say that they are your own. Why can't you say they're your own? Because they're not yours, right? The Bible calls us stewards, and one day the master who made us stewards, He is going to come back and He is going to want to know how you used all that He gave you. A lot of times we look at the parable of the talents and we think He's just talking about preaching and singing and if you don't use your talent, you're going to lose it. If you don't sing, brother, you're going to lose it. If you don't preach, brother, you're going to lose it. If you don't teach Sunday school, you're going to lose it. Now, in some context, could that be absolutely true? Yes, but that's not the point. The point is that everything you have is because God made you a steward. And some people, he gave ten talents. Some people, he gave five. Some people, only gave one. But no matter how much God has given you, you are responsible to use every bit of it for his kingdom and his glory. And one day, God is going to come back. And he is going to want to know how you took everything that he put in your hands and whether or not you were a good steward or whether you were a wicked steward. And that is important to understand here. And so we share all things with our brother and we don't say that anything is our own. And notice what he says next. So, the first word is what? Four. Four. Here's the reason. For if you are partakers, again, with your brother, right? You're sharing in all things with your brother. So if you are partakers with your brother in that which is immortal, how much more are you going to be partakers with your brother of the things that are... You see what he's saying? The point that he's making, I think I read that wrong. But anyway, the point that he's making is this. If you're going to be partakers in things that are mortal, um, or you're going to be partakers of things that are immortal there, shouldn't it be the same here? Shouldn't we be able to share with our brother? And again, he's talking about our brother, right? Now, I'm not saying you don't give to the guy on the street too, but primarily he's talking about your behavior toward other brothers and sisters in the church. We ought to be people that um, we want to share with each other. We want to take what God has blessed me with, and if I can bless you with it in some way, I want to be able to do that. I want to be able to show the love that God has given to me towards you. And as a result of that, that is the way that we should behave toward the poor in the church as a disciple of Jesus Christ. All right? And then behavior towards your children. I'll go through this quickly so we can at least move to the next page next week. Do not remove your hand from your son or your daughter. <laughs> You know what he's talking about there? Whip them. (laughs) Don't remove your hand from your son or your daughter, but rather teach them the fear of God from their youth. You're always teaching them the fear of God. What does he mean there? Well, let me explain it to you. My dad, not a perfect man, by no means. A lot of sinful flaws. But one thing he had right, was he knew how to teach me right and wrong. And I'm going to tell you something about my dad. I loved my dad, but I feared my dad. I loved my dad very much, but I was scared of my dad. So I knew that I wanted to stay in my dad's good graces. And because of that, a healthy fear of dad drives you to dad. Right? Because... Never once did I ever think I could run from my dad because dad is eventually going to catch me. And if I try to run away from dad, I'm not foolish enough to believe that I could run forever. Same way we teach our kids now about the fear of God. A fear of God should drive you to your father, right? I want to stay in His good graces because I know what He does to sinners. I know how He disciplines those He loves. And because of that, I'm teaching my children that same fear by teaching them how to stay in my good graces. Do you all see that? And so we don't remove our hand. This is how we behave toward our children in the church, is that we discipline them. He says, do not enjoin anything in your bitterness upon your bondman or maidservant who hope in the same God. Next week we're going to get into authority. All right, I'm going to stop right there. But I'll end with this right here. In life, even as a Christian, there is authority. You are always, everybody is under authority somewhere. And there are different levels of authority. And a Christian is called to submit to the authority that God has put in place. And we're going to start where we started tonight with parents and children. Children are under the authority of their parents, right? And they are called to submit to that authority because it teaches them the way that children of God submit to their Father. It's a physical picture of a spiritual reality. Next week we'll move into bond servants and masters. Or in our context, it would be possibly workers and your boss, maybe. There There is authority there that glorifies God that a disciple should act a certain way in that. And so next week we're going to be able to, to look at that. All right, any questions for tonight? Oh, wasn't too much, was it? That's a whole lot to take in, I guess. But um, next, next week we'll, we'll, we'll try to get into this next section and see where we go from there. But I hope you found something that you can apply to your life tonight. Something. Take, take some of this and go out of here and say, this is what I need to do to be a better disciple of our Lord Jesus Christ and I hope that it'll change you